For every star a million fell, I found them all around. On road and window, sill and fence, on roof and tree and ground. I walked quite carefully at first to save the stars below. But soon so many tramped about, they put the little stars all out. Now it's only snow. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Kit and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Shosetsu, or light snow. Spanning from November 22nd to December 6th, this mini-season falls right along with the first snows of the year. The north wind is blowing the leaves from their branches, clouds cover the sky, and we can feel the dormancy of winter set in. The season of light snow is preceded by the mini-season, the beginning of winter, and followed by the mini-season, heavy snow. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, and perhaps especially in this season, in our lives, as we begin our passage into the colder time of year. With holiday traditions on our minds and the scent of delicious foods in our noses, let's set out. The year has turned its circle. The seasons come and go. The harvest all is gathered in and chilly north winds blow. Orchards have shared their treasures, the fields their yellow grain. So open wide the doorway, Thanksgiving comes again. During the mini season of light snow here in the United States, we welcome the holiday known as Thanksgiving, falling on the fourth Thursday of November. This year, 2021, that's the 25th. For me, Thanksgiving marks the beginning of the holidays that will last us straight through until the new year. Now is a time to be with family and, of course, eat lots of good food. And, just like this last poem implies, with its chilly north winds and its quiet orchards and fields, this mini-season welcomes in a time of year that some might consider a bit quieter and more subdued compared to our frolicking days of May, June, and July. It's like that quote by Henry David Thoreau that we ended our last episode on. October is its sunset sky. November, the later twilight. Those lines really resonated with me when thinking about the season. This mini-season, which spans the end of November to the beginning of December, feels like the twilight slipping into the evening and the arrival of the first star. The world is dark, but full of promise. I like that. And what about Kigo, or seasonal words for this mini-season? What are some that come to mind for you? Actually, I have to admit, one of the first things I thought of 
was the scent of wood smoke on a cold night. Ah, uh, yes. Wood smoke. That's a great Kiko for this mini-season. Don't you think there's something very nostalgic about the scent of chimney smoke on a late autumn, early winter day? At once lonely, at once comforting. Not just chimney smoke in the air, but the scent of fire from bonfires in this season is also a particularly strong early winter memory for me. In Japan, the Kigo Takibi, meaning bonfire, is a seasonal word throughout the wintertime. Bonfires to keep warm are less common now with indoor heating, but in Japan, it's still a common practice to burn fallen leaves in bonfires. Some people like to put potatoes or sweet potatoes in the hot ashes to cook them for dinner too, which creates a wonderful fragrance all its own. We talked about sweet potatoes in our cold dew episode of last year. Such an autumnal treasure. Here are a couple of haiku about these seasonal fires. Burning leaves. Sweet potatoes wrapped in black paper. The leaves are falling, just enough to make a fire, a gift of the wind. Along with sweet potatoes, another late autumn, early winter bounty you might find roasting on an open fire would be... Let me guess, are you talking about chestnuts? That's right. Roasted chestnuts have a wonderfully warm, rich aroma, not dissimilar to that of sweet potatoes, in fact. They're a cold weather favorite in Japan, too, just as they are here. Listeners, you're probably familiar with the famous chestnut song that gets played around Christmas time. But I also think of the quote from A Christmas Carol. They were great, round, pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the streets in their apoplectic opulence. What an adorable image. Chestnuts as gentlemen's waistcoats. But as much as we may associate chestnuts with Christmas, the actual season for harvesting chestnuts occurs earlier in the year, beginning in mid-September and lasting just up to the end of autumn. Here is a famous chestnut haiku by Basho. Autumn is leaving. The sweet chestnut burr opens its hands. Basho refers to the sweet chestnut burr, but remember, you can't eat chestnuts raw. Their sweetness comes out when roasted. Here in New York City, Roasted chestnuts are sold by street vendors and create a familiar warm scent in the air on cold, crisp nights. That sounds delightful. <laughs> now, before we leave the topic of these smoky smells, here's a poem by Nathan Freeman about our transition from autumn to winter. As you'll see, this poem has a cozy hearth and cheerful fire, a place all its own. First, the mornings, then the days grow cool and crisp. The air begins to change. The smell of smoke, wood fires and leaves, leaves that run and chase and whirl. The wax from green to gold to hues of red. Wind comes wild through boughs of trees 
frantic spirit, a lost child, a burst of life and vigor before the coming snows. Horses huddle, slow and gentle, and shiver in the field, begin to ache the old man's bones. Near the hearth, warmth rekindled, falls first fire where children gather, watch the blaze and hear the crackle, smell the sap of burning fir and maple. The mother bakes and watches, how soft and quiet they sit and whisper, wind wails mournful upon the glass. So comes autumn to light the warmth of hearts within, while out the days grow cold and dim. Those two last lines are really striking. So comes autumn to light the warmth of hearts within, while out the days grow cold and dim. There's something special to that, isn't there? Perhaps as the days grow darker, our hearts grow kinder, warmer. Definitely. I think that this mini-season begins the time of year when we take stock of the year, assess it, and for many of us, often find ourselves making amends, bridging the gap, or patching up relationships to end the year on a good note, and begin the next one full of hope and good intentions. They're not necessarily seasonally exclusive, but I think making amends and forgiveness are two good words for this time of year. Here's a poem to put you in the spirit of goodwill towards men. Forgive and forget. Why, the world would be lonely. The garden a wilderness left to deform. If the flowers but remembered the chilling winds only. And the fields gave no verdure for fear of the storm. Oh, still in thy loveliness, emblem the flower. Give the fragrance of feeling to sweeten life's way, and prolong not again the brief cloud of an hour with tears that but darken the rest of the day. As we've mentioned, the American Thanksgiving holiday falls during this mini-season. You know, I have to confess, Thanksgiving is a holiday I've sometimes struggled with. We talked about the origins of Thanksgiving in our Autumn Equinox episode earlier this year. Is that where your struggles come from, Kit? Well, I guess I feel a little as our friend John Forty describes in his book, The Heirloom Gardener. Lately, I'm having difficulty approaching Thanksgiving with grace, struggling with the state of our union before we even sit for dinner. So, I attempt to move beyond political battlefields and remember that food can be healing medicine. As bittersweet as life can be, I still hold Thanksgiving as a persistent challenge to reach across the table, a reminder to celebrate the sweet. I want to relish life, to learn from history, to remember the millions of deeds that come from love, not hate, and the ordinary acts that bring us together over tables. Yes. I think it is in this mood that we should look at the Thanksgiving holiday. There's nothing good food won't help along, that's for certain. 
John Forty goes on to say, Gathering around groaning tables, we can let veggies and love be the things we serve up in excess. As we peel, chop, and roast, we add ourselves to the mix of countless generations that have pondered over pumpkin pie, how to grow a better squash, and advance civilization. Or, to put it as glibly as only Oscar Wilde can, after a good dinner, one can forgive anybody, even one's own relations. Cooking together in the kitchen is a memory I'm sure many of us share around this holiday. It's a great way to bond with family by creating something special together. Do you have any favorite Thanksgiving recipes, Kit? Well, even more than cooking, I love to bake. So the recipes I fall back on again and again are things like rolls and pies. My mother has a recipe to make delicious golden rolls that are unlike rolls I've had anywhere else. I guess I consider those rolls our family specialty. They take butter like a dream, and are even good days later with leftovers. Whenever I smell the warm, yeasty scent of those rolls in the oven, it's when I know the holidays are here. Ooh. And can we share that recipe with our listeners on our website, seasonbyseason.org? That particular recipe is so cherished that I want to keep it to myself. But come over for Thanksgiving sometime, and I promise I'll make them for you. How about that? Ah, uh, fair enough. One recipe I can share is the recipe for pumpkin pie. I guess I follow a pretty standard recipe, but I've always had good results. It's a classic. How about you, Alexis? Any favorite Thanksgiving recipes? Well, we don't necessarily serve it at Thanksgiving, but around this time of year, in the fall. It's butternut squash, apple, cranberry crumble, which also works really well as a pie. I don't know why I don't see butternut squash included in more desserts. Its mild, almost maple syrup-like flavor lends itself well to practically any fall recipes, at least in my opinion. I first learned about it from family friends of ours who used to run the Shrews Inn into Ashland, Oregon, a town famous for its Shakespeare festival. I'll be sure to post a recommended butternut squash recipe on the website. Every time I make this dish, cut into the butternut, I think of them. That sounds divine. I think the memories I have of baking in the kitchen are so special to me because I shared them with my mother. I really do agree that familial bonds are strengthened when you work together to create something delicious. Another recipe we'll share on our website is a recipe for cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce adds a beautiful burst of ruby red color to any buffet and historically is one of the most popular side dishes to serve along with turkey at the Thanksgiving table. Cranberries are a native plant of North America and related to the blueberry and the huckleberry. They grow in bogs in the Northeast, with some of the biggest cranberry producers in New Jersey and Massachusetts. The cranberry is typically in season in late September and early October. By early November, they're already harvested and on their way to supermarkets around the country. The word cranberry comes from the German for craneberry, since the flowers of the plant resemble little cranes, that is, the birds. The berry was called ibimi by the Pequot people, a word that meant bitter berry. Bitter is appropriate. On their own, cranberries are pretty tart. With a little sugar, as you'll find in cranberry juice or sauce, the flavor becomes refreshing. They also make great holiday decorations. Now that our appetites are peaked, here's a poem about Thanksgiving dinner by Maud M. Grant. 
take a turkey, stuff it fat, some of this and some of that. Get some turnips, peel them well, cook a big squash in its shell. Now potatoes big and white, mash till they are soft and light. Cranberries so tart and sweet, with the turkey we must eat. Pickles, yes, and then, oh my, for a dessert of pumpkin pie. Golden brown and spicy sweet, what a fine Thanksgiving treat. All this talk of baking and food conjures up some great Thanksgiving memories in me. We'd always wake up early to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and, of course, the dog show afterwards. My mom would be making stuffed mushrooms in the kitchen and we'd have an assortment of olives for our guests. Thanksgiving tended to be a smaller affair with our relatives, but I remember getting dressed up and how the grown-ups seemed to talk and talk and talk forever after dinner. It was at Thanksgiving that I learned I didn't really like pecan pie that much, or pumpkin either, now that I think about it. Oh no, you don't like pumpkin pie? That's practically blasphemy, you know? I know, I'm so bad. What about you, Kit? <laughs> Any Thanksgiving memories? <laughs> well, aside from baking in the kitchen with mom, I have to admit that my Thanksgiving memories from childhood are pretty jumbled. My family is pretty small, and we've never been very traditional. I remember baking rolls because they're an easy thing to pack up and take with you to others' houses for Thanksgiving. I remember we visited my grandparents some years, and there were a few Thanksgivings I spent at friends' houses. Then again, there were some years we didn't do much at all but ordered food in, just for me and mom and dad. But I guess one of my favorite Thanksgiving memories is from when I was in college, and my mom and I visited my aunt and uncle's house in Minnesota on Thanksgiving. After we'd eaten, we were playing Monopoly with my cousins around the table, and it started to snow. It was the first snow that year, and to a Californian like me, it was magical. Aw, that's a great memory, Kit. You saw your first snow. You know, that's an important Kiko for this season of light snow. The first snowfall of the year in Japan is known as Hatsuyuki. I remember that. And I also seem to remember that some haiku authors didn't find the first snow of the year quite as magical as I did. First Snowfall, a nuisance by evening. To take a closer look at all the things the first snowfall will bring, including bundling up for it, let's take some time for Hiro's Corner, written by our friend Hiroaki Sato and narrated by Ed von Atterkass. Wintercoat, fuyukoto, one of the seasonal words given me this time, may be noted for a couple of reasons. For one thing, when used in haiku as a seasonal word, the term comes without fuyu, or winter, and is just used as coat, or else with some other word than winter. And because of what, I wonder. Is it because winter coat specifies the season too obviously? Is it a redundancy? In America, of course, there are spring coats, fall coats, and even summer coats. Here's an example. The detective has dashed out, grabbing his coat. This was by Matsuoka Hidetaka, a Buddhist monk and haiku writer. 
Don't ask me why or how this makes it as a haiku, except that it is written in a total of 17 syllables. Although as far as the meaning goes, it's actually divided into 3, 5, 4, 5. For another, because koto, coat, obviously comes from English, it was adopted for haiku relatively recently. Though exactly when is hard to pinpoint. Some early examples are on a list of haiku with this word, judged by those who wrote them, but one of them, by Natsume Tsouseki, comes with the year he wrote it, 1899. Monk vestment and Azuma coat view plum blossoms. To paraphrase, Natsume Soseki's piece says, A monk investment and a woman in an Azuma coat together enjoy plum blossoms. You know the Japanese are funny people. They treat looking at and enjoying certain things, such as the harvest moon, cherry blossoms, or yes, plum blossoms, as special occasions for which they feel compelled to dress up. This haiku may be among the earliest pieces mentioning coat, because 1899, the year it was written, was the 32nd year of Meiji. And Meiji was the era where the Japanese went all out to absorb, adopt, or else imitate European things after 300 years of semi-isolation, during which they had mostly stayed aloof from Western things. Oh, in fact, the new Meiji government that followed the Tokugawa shogunate early on issued decrees to learn and absorb as many things as possible from the Western countries. So what is an Azuma coat? It was created by the old apparel maker and purveyor, Shirakiya, and put on the market in 1886. Manufactured of western woolen cloth, or serge, it was an overcoat for ladies to be worn over a kimono. This garment went on to win immense popularity among both young and old, a report at the time says. Perhaps the name Azuma had something to do with it. The word, as written in Soseki's haiku, consists of a combination of Chinese characters, meaning my wife. Although a similar effect may have engendered by another Chinese application, which means east, and that meant Tokyo. Today, Natsume Soseki is mainly known as a great novelist of the Meiji era, but he was also a good haiku poet, counting among his close friends the haiku modernizer or former Masaoka Shiki. The one about the Buddhist vestment and the Azuma coat came with an old-fashioned haiku-esqueness, a touch of amusement, humor. Soseki again brought up the Azuma coat in his novel Sanshiro, which he wrote 10 years later in 1909. Sanshiro was the first of a trilogy that formed a Bildungsroman, although the protagonist of the three novels were different from one another. The title Sanchiro is the eponym of the college student protagonist named, yes, Sanchiro. Sanchiro falls in love with Mineko, only to be disappointed to learn in the end that she is engaged to a different man. His discovery occurs in the penultimate chapter of the novel, which is 12. That's where he goes to a church, the word itself was also new at the time, knowing she will be there and waits outside. When the singing of hymns and whatnot are over, Mineko comes down the entrance staircase of the church, the fourth from the last, head down, wearing a striped Azuma coat. Sanshiro says, I hear you are marrying. So you knew, Mineko says. After a while, Mineko says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me.
And that comes from Psalms chapter 51, verse 3. Thanks to Hiro's contribution, I may never think of a winter coat the same way again. Another Thanksgiving memory which comes to mind are long car rides to visit family and friends. I think long car rides should be a Kigo for around this time of year and into the new year for sure. Did you go to visit relatives a lot for Thanksgiving, Alexis? Sometimes Thanksgiving, sometimes Christmas. Every Christmas Eve, we'd go to my aunt's house, about a two-hour drive away. We'd leave our house in the afternoon to get there by early evening. And as we drove, I remember how the day slipped into night. Often we'd see the first star rising up out of the horizon, or the sunset reflected in the rice paddies of the California Delta or waters of the San Francisco Bay. We'd sing Christmas songs, listen to the radio together, fret about if the flan was leaking out of the container, all sorts of things. More recently, I have a memory of driving through a snowstorm to visit my sister the first Thanksgiving she moved to upstate New York. I took the train to see her, and the snow was just beginning to fall. But by the time I got to the station where she picked me up, it was coming down fast. The world had turned white. And do you know what song we sang on that snowy car ride? I have an inkling. Perhaps the only classic Thanksgiving song you and I know, Over the River and Through the Woods. Originally, it was written as a poem by Lydia Maria Child. The song titled, The New England Boy's Song About Thanksgiving Day. Let's listen. Over the river and through the woods To grandfather's house we go The horse knows the way To carry the sleigh through the white And drifted snow Over the river and through the wood Oh, how the wind does blow It stings the toes and bites the nose As over the ground we go over the river and through the wood to have a first-rate play hear the bells ring ding-a-ling ding hurrah for thanksgiving day over the river and through the wood trot fast my dapple gray spring o'er the ground like a hunting hound for this is thanksgiving day over the river and through the wood, straight through the barnyard gate. We seem to go extremely slow, it is so hard to wait. Over the river and through the wood, now grandmother's cap I spy. Hurrah for the fun is the pudding done, hurrah for the pumpkin pie. The holidays do involve a lot of travel, don't they? Yes, and at the end of our travels, we are usually greeted with good food. Here, we're returning to the subject of food again, but I suppose it's suitable for this Thanksgiving-themed episode. The holiday certainly does have a lot of it, doesn't it? And after all, holiday food is not only served when we're gathering around a table and eating together, the food itself can also be a gift. Ah, uh, yes. Now begins the season of cookie baking and giving them out in tins. 
Cookie baking and cookie tins would be two very good kigo for this season. I'm thinking of another one. Fruitcake. Fruitcake? Isn't it a little early for fruitcake? I usually associate it with Christmas myself. Ah, uh, yes, but to make a fruitcake and perhaps feed it with alcohol for several weeks and let it develop a mature flavor can be a much longer process. I say fruitcake making season probably begins right around now, and it isn't until the middle of December that we truly get to enjoy them. Listeners, Emily Dickinson had a fruitcake recipe known as black cake. I haven't tried it myself, but apparently it's really quite yummy. Perhaps for those less fond of fruitcakes, it will make you a lover of fruitcakes after all. We'll post the recipe to our website, seasonbyseason.org. I've resolved to make this myself this holiday season. I've never made black cake before either, but I had some made by a friend one year, and I've never forgotten it. It's truly something else, almost chocolatey in its richness, although there is no actual chocolate involved. Listeners, why not be a little adventurous along with me and give this recipe a try? If you do, please let us know. We'd love to post your experiences to our Facebook page. Fruitcakes, baba orum, plum puddings, desserts made to last, and that are preserved with sugar, spices, and alcohol often conjure up strong emotions in people. Here's a nursery rhyme that pays homage to plum pudding's exotic spices and its symbolism as good luck. Flower of England, fruit of Spain, met together in shower and rain, put in a bag tied round with a string. If you'll tell me this riddle, I'll give you a ring. Speaking of nursery rhymes, here's a famous one. We may be getting a little ahead of ourselves, though, seasonally. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner, eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. Fruitcakes and the foods we give as holiday gifts remind me of another of my favorite holiday traditions. Recently, I have been delighted to take part in the tradition of Friendsgiving. More and more in our modern world, it's not always possible to spend the holidays with our families. A tradition that is equally meaningful for some is what has become known as Friendsgiving, spending a day with our friends or our found families. The first time I experienced Friendsgiving was the first year I lived in Japan. Of course, Thanksgiving Day in America is just another work day in Japan. The next day I head off, I met with some American friends in their tiny Tokyo apartment, and we shared a home-cooked meal together. We were all a little homesick, but there was so much joy to be found in that simple shared meal. This reminds me of the Shakespeare quote. Small cheer and great welcome make a merry feast. I like that. Since then, I've spent other Thanksgivings with friends, or sometimes we call the day after Thanksgiving Friendsgiving, which is especially nice because we can share leftovers. It seems that the day after Thanksgiving comes with a lot of its own traditions these days. Also known as Black Friday, this day has come to fill me with a certain amount of dread. It's definitely a consumerist holiday. As Dave Barry irreverently wrote, 
Once again, we come to the holiday season, a deeply religious time that each of us observes in his own way by going to the mall of his choice. I think I preferred John Forte's way in The Heirloom Gardener. He wrote, I'll spend the day exploring nature with visiting kin, or just stay home, feed up, and enjoy some Black Friday pie. Enjoying leftovers is definitely a favorite post-Thanksgiving pastime for me. Using cranberry sauce as a sandwich topping, or making latkes out of leftover mashed potatoes. Mmm, the feast doesn't have to end. Welcome, brothers. Our party gathered in the homestead old. Shake the snow off, and with hearty handshakes, drive away the cold, else your plate you'll hardly hold of good Thanksgiving turkey. When the skies are sad and murky, tis a cheerful thing to meet round this homely roast of turkey. Pilgrims, pausing just to greet, then with earnest grace to eat a new Thanksgiving turkey. And the merry feast is freighted with its meanings true and deep. Those we've loved and those we've hated. All today the right will keep. All today their dishes heap with plump Thanksgiving turkey. You were talking about getting seasonally ahead of ourselves. But then again, preparing for Christmas is definitely a part of this season. There's no denying that Christmas is looming on the horizon, and preparing for the holiday begins sometimes even before Thanksgiving is over. Another day after Thanksgiving tradition might be that of going out to buy a Christmas tree. Remember how the excitement of the season would stir at that Christmas tree lot, the scent of pine needles in the air. Here is a little poem about a little Christmas tree. Little tree, little silent Christmas tree, you are so little, you are more like a flower. Who found you in the green forest? And were you very sorry to come away? See, I will comfort you because you smell so sweetly. I will kiss your cool bark and hug you safe and tight, just as your mother would. Only don't be afraid. Look, the spangles that sleep all the year in a box, dreaming of being taken out and allowed to shine. The balls, the chains, red and gold, the fluffy threads. Put up your little arms, and I'll give them all to you to hold. Every finger shall have its ring, and there won't be a single place dark or unhappy. Then, when you're quite dressed, you'll stand in the window for everyone to see, and how they'll stare. Oh, but you'll be proud. And my little sister and I will take hands, and looking up at our beautiful tree, we'll dance and sing. Whether we are preparing for Christmas or not, this is certainly a time of year for reflection, for taking stock of the old year, and for gratitude. One individual who has taken stock of his surroundings, observed and reflected on the nature all around him, is British author and orchestral conductor Lev Perikian. He just published the book, 
Light Rain Sometimes Falls, through Elliott and Thompson Publishing. This book is an exploration of Japan's 72 micro-seasons through the British lens. By the way, listeners, you'll remember that the micro-seasons, also called pentads, are seasons found within the mini-seasons we explore on this podcast. For every mini-season, there are three micro-seasons. We're speaking with Lev Parikian, author of Light Rains Sometimes Fall, a British year through Japan's 72 seasons. Lev, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Season by Season. Thank you so much for asking me on. It's, uh, it's a lovely idea for a podcast, and I'm delighted to be involved. You have just published Light Rains Sometimes Fall, which looks at the 72 micro-seasons around your own home in South London. To begin, can you share with us a bit about what led you to write this book and what inspired you about Japan's 72 seasons specifically? It really stemmed from the return in my mid-40s, I suppose, of my interest in birdwatching, which had been a huge love of mine when I was between the ages of about 8 and 13, I suppose. Um, And then, as these things do, as you get older and you become a teenager and then a grown-up, other things get in the way. So I hadn't been an active bird watcher for something like 30 years. And really, I'd, I'd let the natural world pass me by. And then I suppose in my mid-40s, late 40s, um, it began to creep back. And I began to notice uh, the birds, which had been my um, great childhood love, and started you know, doing the usual things of putting up um, bird feeders in the garden and watching them come and go and then digging out my old binoculars and having them by my desk so I could, you know, see what that thing was that had just flown away. And so your rediscovery of the natural world actually came through birds. That's great. In reading the book, I noticed there are indeed quite a lot of birds. And uh, the more you progress in the book, the more you realize that your encounters with the natural world actually take place in a very small geographic range, basically your neighborhood. Can you tell us more about that? I think it was always uh, meant to be something that was in my neighborhood. Um, I, when I ha- having had the idea of the seventy-two seasons, I thought, okay, what can I do? How can I frame it? And what you know, what would be best? But uh, what I actually thought and and had become quite important for me was that the book would be uh, also a a local neighbourhood book and to make it local to me would make it more um, more personal I think and it would be you know uh, the the intention was it would be less superficial than a sort of nature tourism book. That makes sense that the local would be a more personal experience uh, for writer and reader. Do you have any advice about how to go about looking at the natural world based on your experience writing the book? In terms of advice for people looking at their local area, there is something everywhere. Whatever you, you know, wherever you live, that you will find something if you look in the natural world, even if it's just a bit of moss growing on a wall or a patch of grass. Uh, you will see something, and it will almost certainly be interesting uh, if you if you seek to find it. I enjoyed this book so much for many reasons, and one thing I found particularly refreshing was the sense of humor you bring to nature writing. For example, uh, in the names you give your British pentads, some of my favorites of these are 
Starling's hullabaloo. Lavender assumes massive proportions. Mud all over the place. Can you talk a bit about these names for your micro-seasons? So it did occur to me that these, the very poetic original um, titles for the seasons could have their equivalent in something a little, a little bit more lighthearted. My, my personal favourite, the one, the one that I, that I chose was Christmas trees are released into the wild. Um, I don't know if that's something that you have, but here we have uh, the local council will pick up your di discarded Christmas tree um, sometime in the first week of January or second week of January. So around that time, everybody takes all the decorations down and they throw their tree out into the street and you can see them lined up. And, uh, and it did feel like this was this kind of, oh, at last, <laughs> the Christmas trees are released. They're able to return to their migrating grounds and all that. So, um, yeah, I think the, the humour thing, um, it's a funny one, humour, because it's very personal in a way that uh, serious writing isn't. Um, what, what some people regard as hilariously funny, um, others will take umbrage at and dismiss as lighthearted or frivolous or whatever. So it's such a personal thing. And so it's something I, I'm trying to learn to do with care towards the reader, if you see what I mean, rather than um, continually annoy them with my um, childish asides. But I think that still comes through. So I don't know. You just can't please everybody, I suppose. Um, but I do, I do think that that there is, even though it, nature is a serious thing and we should take it seriously, there is always humour to be found in observing it. As you know, we're in the mini season of light snow. I believe you've chosen a favorite passage to read from the first micro season within this season, from your chapter titled, Leaves Lie Thick on the Grass. Let's listen. The sky is torn. It's a gentle breach, soft sheets of unthreatening mid-level cloud Grey below, white above, separated by a streak of light blue. It's reminiscent of kintsugi, golden joinery, the Japanese art of repair, using lacquer and powdered gold or silver to make a virtue of an honest repair rather than trying to cover it up. Matching its benevolence, the day is mild and still. The peregrines are out, perched on the corner gargoyles high on the church tower, their outline clearly visible if you happen to be looking for them. I'm getting better at picking them out from a distance. I know the shape of the stonework now, where and how the shadows fall depending on the light and time of day. And if there's a disturbance in that particular matrix, it jumps out at me in a way unimaginable before I started this project of repeated observation. They're still there, patient and motionless, as I begin my lap of the cemetery. Clockwise or anticlockwise? Clockwise, recently, for some reason. It soon brings me to Dalton Path, fringed by the tall trees where the wood pigeons roost, and it's along that path that I find today's greatest pleasure. Leaves, dense and floofy, carpet the full length of it. If there's anything better than a good shin-deep shruffle through fresh leaf fall, then I'm not sure I want to know about it. It's the autumn equivalent of allowing your toes to sink wetly into the sand while paddling on the shoreline on a summer holiday. A simple, evocative pleasure recalling the perfect moments of childhood and acting on this occasion like a miniature time machine. 
I'm accompanied as I go by the usual chitterings of the small birds in the branches above me, and from afar, the mocking laughter of a green woodpecker. I do two lengths, wading through the leaves and relishing the feel of them against my ankles, their flutteriness, the soothing quality of their yellows and oranges and browns. The light is soft, the air warm enough, all, for just a few minutes, is well. What a wonderful passage and very suitable for many of our listeners right now, I think. It certainly is the time of leaves, leaves, leaves. It's fairly universal and it certainly makes me think of Charlie. It makes me think of Peanuts as well, you know, Charlie Brown. <laughs> and, you know, that's a real sort of, um, uh, yeah, that universality of it. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your work with us. Before you go... Do you have any last messages you'd like to share with our listeners? Again, I don't know what's a, what it's like for you guys in the States, but in Britain, it feels to me that we've gone down a route of nature is something you see on the television or you make special excursions to, to commune with. So, you know, we're, we're going out, we're going to drive into the country, we're going to go for a walk and then we've done nature. Or we're going to watch a David Attenborough documentary and see this stuff, this, this glamorous, amazing stuff. Um, and I think one of the great pleasures that I've got from engaging in writing this book was to get to know my local area better, you know, to get to know the, the local trees um, and the birds and the foxes and uh, you know even the the lichens on the top of my local post box or that kind of just such, such simple uh, little things and. Um, and I think that's something that is available to, to everybody. And uh, it's without sort of labouring the point is to bring everybody just that little bit closer to nature so that it's part of your daily life. Lev, thank you so much again. It has been a joy to have you join us. Thank you, Lev. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Listeners, we've been talking with Lev Perikian, author of Light Rains Sometimes Fall. If you'd like to get your own copy of Lev's book, it can be purchased through Blackwell's. And as always, we'll have more information on our website, seasonbyseason.org. We're grateful to have found another lover of seasons and nature, just like ourselves. If you'd like to learn more about Lev and his book, you can check out our website, seasonbyseason.org, for details. Speaking with Lev, and indeed, reflecting on all the people who have been a part of Season by Season over the past year and a half, from our poetry readers to the musicians who offered their music, to Hiro and his contribution segment, to Ed von Adderkast for narrating, to our special guests and supporters, and especially our listeners, I feel very grateful to everyone who has helped be a part of this journey known as Season by Season Podcast. Completely. Every time I finish audio mixing the episode, I feel a sense of pride and humility. Honestly, without everyone's support, the podcast wouldn't exist. So, from Alexis and Kit, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> this reminds me, there is an interesting festival in Japan with a focus on gratitude that takes place in this season. The Waraiko Festival takes place on the first Sunday of December in Hofu, Yamaguchi Prefecture. 
For over 800 years, the Shinto priests of Hofu have performed a laughing ritual to show their gratitude to the deities of agriculture. A laughing ritual? Like, hee-hee-hee? <laughs> yes. In fact, at the Waraiko Festival, participants let out a wahahaha three times. First, to rejoice in this year's harvest. Second, as a prayer for a rich harvest in the coming year. And third, as a way to forget all hardships of the past year. Wahahaha. That sounds like it could be very cathartic. Wahahaha. <laughs> Even though the laughter is ritualistic, it really does have the effect of making one happy. Laughter can be very therapeutic, don't you think? Most definitely. Like a good book that is reaching its conclusion, we are in the last few chapters of the year. Listeners, we hope that you have had joy, good company, and a time for introspection and reflection this year. And the year isn't over yet. Let's enjoy these last two months with kinder hearts, good intentions, goodwill, and welcome. Let us help one another. Keep on moving forward and be of service to others. Reach out. Bridge the gap. And there's still time to finish unfinished business. As John F. Kennedy said, as we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. As we conclude this mouth-watering yet reflective episode, we hope that you, too, will look forward to the year's end full of hope, ready to make amends, and welcome all. Emily Dickinson's poem, If I Can Stop One Heart From Breaking, seems a good note to end on. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching, or cool one pain, or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. Thank you for joining us on our journey through the season of light snow. If you weren't hungry before you started listening to this episode, we hope you are now. This season, some of the Kigo, or seasonal words we covered are Twilight of the Year, Wood Smoke, Takibi, Bonfires, Sweet Potatoes, Burning Leaves, Chestnuts, Making Amends, Goodwill, Thanksgiving, Favorite Thanksgiving Foods, Cranberries, Thanksgiving Memories, First Snow, Traveling During the Holidays, Fruitcake, Black Cake, Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving Leftovers, Black Friday, or the day after Thanksgiving, Christmas tree shopping, winter coats, the Waraiko festival, taking stock of the year, and gratitude. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? 
We'd love to hear from you. So email your Kiko to our email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com, or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. By the way, you know, you can always listen to old episodes, revisit favorite poems, and take a look at visual examples of Kiko on our website, seasonbyseason.org, a special permanent home for our podcast and all things seasonal. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Annette Wynn, Kobayashi Isa, Ryokan, Matsuo Basho, Nathan Freeman, Charles Swain, Jean Forty, Maud M. Grant, George Parsons Lathrop, E. E. Cummings, and Emily Dickinson. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Chris Whitaker, Corey Coleridge, Catherine Piper, Cyrus Lanthier, Jeffrey Kimmich, and Nikki. And special thanks to Zachary and Larry Piper for their rendition of Over the River and Through the Woods. Want to enjoy an extra helping of light snow? You can enjoy our Spotify companion playlist with music to keep you full all mini-season long. As always, special thanks once again to Hiroaki Sato and Ed Von Adderkast for their contribution to this episode. Listeners, you may know that I like to end episodes with quotes, often from Henry David Thoreau. Regarding Thanksgiving, Thoreau wrote, I am grateful for what I am and have. My Thanksgiving is perpetual. May you and yours know the joy of perpetual gratitude and thanksgiving. Please join us again for our next episode, The Winter Solstice. See you in another season.